0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFiz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 171, and today's guest is Yan Lu, co-founder and CEO of T-Vision. It is a golden era of television. There is a tremendous amount of amazing content out there across the major TV networks and subscription services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Disney Plus, and many, many more. It's really hard for consumers to keep up with it all. Well, you might be familiar with the Nielsen TV rating system, which measures what television programs people are watching. It has been around for many years, but it really hasn't evolved with how consumers actually watch TV, and advertising only works if people are actually paying attention to it. Well, this is where T-Vision comes into play. They are a TV performance metrics company, and their technology measures what was once unmeasurable, how people actually watch TV. They are collecting unique viewability and attention data, which in return helps brands and agencies maximize their advertising budgets. The company has raised over $24 million in venture funding. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how the pandemic is affecting viewership and what it means for the media industry, the story of Jan's first company, which pivoted from a woman's underwear e-commerce company to an interactive agency, how T-Vision got started at MIT Sloan after the idea was validated by 20 industry experts, all the details on T-Vision in terms of how they are disrupting the TV performance metrics industry, plus how they landed ABC Disney as an early customer, why you should hire based on culture and character versus skill set, what a viral show like Tiger King means for Netflix, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. So, this is the first time that I've had to do this, but I need to add a disclaimer for this podcast. I am an angel investor in T Vision. Not that it matters all that much, as this interview is like all my other interviews, but I guess this is the stuff that you're supposed to disclose up front. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jan.
1: Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, this, this can be fun.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk. Um, you know, it's uh, interesting because we're recording this in a very trying time, you know, we're dealing with the uh, coronavirus and the pandemic mm-hmm. issues, you know, where everybody's working from home. And, uh, you know, based on where you've been spending your time with, you know, building t I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, um, you know, what this means for, for TV viewership. I mean, I know personally, me and my wife like we don't watch a lot of t v and if we do it's just kind of like whatever's on, but you know now like we feel like we are dialed in and we're watching uh, a lot of different uh shows that probably wouldn't have normally, so I think um you know we're absorbing a lot more content based on some of the time that has been in front of us so
1: so what has this meant in terms of the industry as a whole sure uh first of all, I think uh this is a uh, tough time for all of us and uh, for our media industry as well. Uh, I hope everybody is safe. Um, We we did look into our viewership data, our engagement data, attention data for last couple of weeks. You're right, the viewership itself has increased quite significantly. Also, the pattern has changed significantly. Um, So overall, we see about 15 to 20% increase in terms of the time span on video includes uh, TV, OTT, time shifted, every type of video. But interesting thing is the most of the increase happened during the daytime, which makes sense, right? Because you have kids at home, and a lot of my employees, now they work kind of in the early morning, late night, and during the daytime, you have to somehow deal with your family situation. So that's why we see a huge increase, like a 60 to 70% increase of daytime viewership, which is really interesting. Then talking about our unique dataset, which is people in room, eyes on screen attention, we also see huge increase on people in room, uh, so-called viewability, which makes sense because, I mean, we have less distraction, luckily, now you have to concentrate on your life. You have nowhere to go if, you, if you're in the living room, you're gonna be living room for a long time. So the overall viewability has increased quite a bit, especially on couple genres, such as kids, such as news, such as reality shows, which makes sense, right? People do want to understand what's going on and want to play with their kids. Uh, we also see co viewing has increased quite a bit Co-viewing means you have more than one person watching show together. So they stay. I mean, everybody at home. So most likely you have entire family watching TV together. It's like 70s, right? Like a co-viewing ratio is significantly increased. So those are really interesting changes and uh, it's still changing. I think as we settle down to the new normal, this is week four, uh, I expect there are still some changes, but this is really interesting time for media industry in general,
0: yeah, and we're going to talk more about how that evolution is taking place and how it has evolved over time.
1: Sure.
0: Um, but let's talk about your background. So, talk about you know kind of the foundational years. Like, where'd you grow up? What were you sure. like as a as a child? What did your parents do for work? All those fun things.
1: Yeah, so I was born in China, a town called Qingdao. For the listener um, who hasn't heard of Qingdao, we're famous for beer was colonized by Germany, like uh, maybe 150 years ago. So built I mean, of course they're they're from Germany. So they have to bring beer everywhere. So they decided to just uh, uh, make their own beer in China. Um, So uh, I still remember like when I was a little kid, my dad basically kind of teach me how to drink beer, you know? Um, then the first day of kindergarten, I asked the teacher, hey, like, where, where's my beer? Like, I want to drink beer. <laughs> he told my parents that, no, no, you cannot let like uh, uh, your, your, your son drink, drink more, more beer. Because I thought at home, it's like, a, it's, it's uh, they led me to taste the sip of beer. I thought it's quite normal, right? Like a drink, <laughs> drink milk, drink, drink beer. Right. <laughs> but I, I guess I had a lot of beer uh, in Qingdao. Then when I was five, Our family moved to Japan for a couple of years, for five, six years, and I moved back. Uh, Then again, I went to Japan for my college. So basically I moved back and forth uh, between Japan and China. I studied engineering in a school in Tokyo. Then I became a McKinsey consultant, just typical consultant helping out clients, traveling a lot. Then one day it's like, uh, all right, I'm helping out all these clients with my excellent PowerPoint, Excel skill, I'm so- <laughs> and all these dumb clients they don't know what to do and they don't take seriously about my great recommendations. If I create a great company, taking e- execute all this great strategy, this is going to be great company, They're the greatest company ever, right? Let's quit right. McKinsey, let's build my own company. So it sounds like a great idea. So we had uh, three guys, um, basically Quick McKinsey, and we decided to get some VC funding and start a company. Hmm. Then we got a couple ideas. At that time, it was 2010 in China. We decided to move back to China to start an e-commerce company because we saw the success of Alibaba, uh, Tencent. Jingdong is like, oh, it's a booming economy. Sure. Then we pitched to a couple of VC one VC told us, if you guys going to focus on women's underwear, we're going to invest you. Because that's the highest growing category, hmm. very high gross margin. We told them on the spot, we got this. We're the expert of underwear. We got it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but then Obviously, I, I didn't know much about underwear. Right. Um, then then uh, we supposed to invite a female co-founder. Uh, she didn't join. So basically, it were three guys. Uh, we got an apartment, uh, we live together, we also work together, use PowerPoints, all three McKinsey guys right. try to create the uh, women's like a, a fashion brand, focus on underwear. Uh, <laughs> this, this is not a great idea, it's just of right. right? three guys wearing suits. I even don't have other clothes, right? I only wear black suits, white shirts, tie. Then we kind of imagine, oh, which type of underwear is more sexy? Right. It's a really bad idea. Really bad right. idea. Yeah. So that really didn't work out. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> I know. So after a couple months, it's like, a, I mean, we tried a bunch of the stuff. We expanded to full category. We started to create like a uh, accessories, bags, like a, a bunch of other stuff. But I mean, it's just so difficult to make this work. A um, bunch of the challenges. So one day we about run out of cash. We said, all right, we have to pivot. How to pivot okay so we do have our marketing team because we ran this fashion brand mm-hmm. how about claim this was an in-house agency and we can use this agency to serve other clients and we can go after ex-mckinsey clients right we basically tell them hey now it's an agency business and if the agency the marketing stuff doesn't work out we can always provide normal consulting service just like a couple years ago right it's not too bad so that's kind of how we pivoted. I still remember, I basically went to amazon.com. I bought all of the marketing books because I have no idea how to run an agency, no, no idea about marketing. So it's like a marketing one-on-one. Then we started to create PowerPoints. At this time, I think it worked much better because I think we are a bit more strategic, data-driven than typical agency folks, right? It's not just like a wine and dining. So we got a lot of clients, and uh, the business grew quite well, but uh, uh, at one point I started to think, okay, so this is a fee-based business, which means I only can charge based on number of people I have. Right. But the rate is like a one-third or one-fourth of McKinsey rate. Mm-hmm. Why I'm doing this? And all the big agency, then the WPP, they have tens of thousand people. I'm never gonna become another WPP. That's, that's, that's gonna take my entire life.
0: Right
1: uh maybe it's better to create a product or tech driven company
0: Yikes.
1: so it can be scalable not based on the number of people but based on the technology based on ip based on my idea then the, 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 in order to make that happen i do need to hire great engineers because although i got my engineering degree after all these years of crazy startup life i, I couldn't code anymore mm-hmm. so in my very na- um simple naive uh, uh idea was mit i heard that's a great school they have great engineers if i somehow got into mit i should be able to meet great engineers and this guy hopefully do a work for me so that was the idea then clearly they are not going to take me as an uh, engineering student so let's apply mba program mm-hmm. that i can get into mba program and hopefully uh i can claim um, um their uh, classmates and i can make some friends So that was the idea. And I went to MIT Sloan uh, back in 2013, then basically started to basically work on a bunch of the ideas.
0: Interesting. That's a fascinating background story of how, you know, you started a company, which was hysterical, what you're trying to build the pivot and then realizing, yeah, you're only as good as how many people you have out there billing. And then the master evil plan of uh, going to business school to uh, hopefully connect with some engineers. Now, talk about that experience at MIT Sloan obviously uh, you know an amazing amazing institution talk about your experience there and then um, you know h- how you started to formulate an idea and you know how the you know you met your co-founder and, and that whole story
1: sure yeah i mean i have to say without mit there's no t vision at all yeah. because i i mean i was a foreigner i even didn't speak English that much, and they just came to Boston without anything, and they just tried to figure things out. Mm -hmm. I basically took a class called New Enterprise. Professor called Bill Ollet basically taught that class, and the idea is you come up with some idea, then a few classmates basically work together, work on idea. So the idea I came up with was at that time was because I got agency background. I know there's a huge issue around the TV measurement, especially around reading points it was a pain point for me even when i was running my agency because i saw that all the digital measurement and online video they provide huge uh, very advanced real time data but the tv data was very slow very expensive and just difficult to deal with but as ott or streaming coming up the the border between the digital and tv is getting blurred so, I mean, that must be the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I pitched this idea. Um, I still remember Bill basically told me, oh, I don't know how good is this idea, but I can guarantee you, this is the most strange idea I've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but anyway, I got a couple guys actually really liked my idea and we decided to work together. That was back in 2014. And as the first mission, we have to call like a 20 industry experts to get the feedback about this idea.
0: So this is part of the class, like Bill's class. class. You got to call 20 industry experts to validate your idea.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I basically uh, called my uh, clients, right? I got a lot of clients in the industry from the agency, brands, some TV networks. Then the reaction was very positive, right? Nobody liked the existing TV rating system, they said, if you're really gonna do this, yeah, I'm very supportive. Maybe I will invest, I'm happy to give you more advice. I can be advisor, let me know how it goes. That gave me a lot of confidence. It's like, okay, so I'm not the only guy uh, thinking there's some opportunity here. So let me continue working on this. Then that's the moment I started to basically work more seriously with uh, other engineers, as I planned originally, to basically tell them, Hey, this is some interesting idea. Let's work during the evening, during the weekends to build a prototype. So I can show this to some potential customer, they may sponsor a pilot. So that's really kind of how we initially got started.
0: Got it. Okay. And, and Bill has a book, Discipline Entrepreneurship. So is it basically right. the, that formula that he has that taught him that class?
1: Yeah, it basically, uh, I remember it's like, a, uh, I think, 2021 20, steps, right? They're step by step. Uh, I think the key essence of that class, of course, I, I do appreciate Bill's uh, class, but I think the biggest benefit for me, they basically created a community and you can get to know other people working on other crazy ideas. Even to this day, I still keep in touch with all of them. Mm-hmm. Right, They may working on some completely different business, but they're still working on their ideas, interesting uh, people, interesting group. That is really super valuable uh, asset. I mean, book, you can buy from Amazon. I mean, you can learn. But people, it's just difficult to get that experience if you didn't go to MIT at that particular moment. So that's why I really deeply appreciate Bill and entire MIT community. They really helped us to get started.
0: And, you know, the talking to 20, um, you know, validation points for your idea, like, what advice would you give to founders on that? Like, is that, you know, before you start actually building product, is that something they should be doing?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on how much experience you have in your industry, right? So going back to my original startup, like a women's fashion brand, clearly, I have no idea. I have never brought a women's underwear. Uh, I have never tried to use them. Uh, I, I don't know which one's good or bad. And uh, at that time, if you didn't do any customer interview, you're just stupid, right? <laughs> so uh, you basically try to create something like you have no idea. For the T-vision, I have some idea. Although I was a digital agency guy, I had some idea. But I do recommend really talking to a different type of the customer at least 20, 30, because you will learn a lot. And especially even the software product, if you study to build a product, there's even like a try and error, takes a lot of time and energy. Early on you have nothing, you have no money, no employee. So uh, you really want to shortcut all these errors and hopefully get a bit better idea as quickly as possible. And the feedback is easy. It's like, I was surprised that many people, basically uh, I went to MIT alum uh, database I send emails as, hey, I'm an MIT student. I'm working on this idea. Do you have five minutes, 10 minutes? Chat with me. It's so easy to get people's time from executives from the industry, and these people are extremely helpful. Um, now it's very tough. Like uh, people don't open my email anymore, but uh, <laughs> uh, at that point, it's very easy. MIT student, that's the keyword, right? Like uh, it's, it, it was really helpful.
0: And, and did it like, so you thought there was like, there's disruption in this industry. So there's, there's something there, but you probably didn't know what the there there was yet. So that probably helped craft what that there might be.
1: 100%. Yeah, I think um, our company, although the, the vision didn't change much, but we, we pivoted our product a couple of times. I think the biggest pivot was, initially we thought we're going to just go after Nielsen, right? They have TV reading product. They're the biggest guy. We're going to crush Nielsen.
0: But wait, before we get into, like, mm-hmm. so Nielsen, if I understand their business model, it's you, they actually have set boxes that they're monitoring what people are watching on TV. And that's how they collect those Nielsen ratings. Right. That's people actually said. So how do they well, how big is the sample size? Like, I always wonder, like, how do they know that this TV show is doing so well if there's just the sample size?
1: Sure. Yeah. So they started around like a late '80s on this people meter based uh, data collection. Essentially, it's a box has a eight buttons. You can click the button to indicate what you watch, who's watching, right? Then you're supposed to check in and check out when you leave the room. Come back to the room. Mm. Um, it was a huge innovation um, because before this was paper survey. This is better than survey for sure. However. As the the industry moves along to the the new era with Netflix, YouTube, and all these code cards, it just doesn't work anymore. But going back to your original question, today, I believe they have something like a 30,000 or 40,000 panel households uh, in the United States uh, agreed to put their box at home and help them to collect the data.
0: Mm, Okay. So you were like, that's our market. Let's go after Nielsen.
1: Correct. Uh, but soon after, I found that I mean, it took me maybe about a year to realize that's very difficult because there's a network effect of and rating data. It's like a currency. It's like a US dollar. All the TV networks use ratings. Mm-hmm. All brands, from PNG, Coke, Pepsi, everybody also use uh, ratings, and all the agencies also use rating points. Mm-hmm. So I cannot just go to, let's say, ABC Disney. Hey, you have to switch to my data. It's cheaper, better. They will tell me, no, 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 I mean, like, uh, everybody else use Nielsen ratings, right? You have to convince everybody else, then come back to me, mm-hmm. which is impossible. Then I found just so many companies tried to compete with Nielsen, they all died because of that reason. So we decided to focus on the complementary data on top of Nielsen TV ratings, which is audience attention. Because if you think about it, this industry essentially are trading audience attention, right? Attention is more important than TV ratings. Rating point is only about whether TV is on or not. It doesn't really track eyes on screen attention. If I'm able to track eyes on screen attention, that's complementary. it's not TV ratings, but it does add value on top of reading points. So that might be much interesting idea and uh, uh, ABC Disney can actually sign up this on top of TV ratings, right? So i made that pivot, which might be the most important pivot of our company life. And after that point, I started to get traction in terms of the uh, uh, revenue. Real- and, and what point was
0: this in the life cycle of the company? Was it, you know, one year into it, you said, I think? So and, and how did you start to get, you know, build a product that was going to do this, know how to do that, and then start to approach the networks and the brands?
1: Mm-hmm. So our biggest challenge was, we also need to recruit the panel household to put our device. However, as you can imagine, that's expensive. But initially I have no money, so I have to basically pitch to TV networks or brands to convince them to do something with me even I don't have any data, which is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. So my idea was, let's raise some money, right? Raise some money from the VC, so I have some money, and I'm gonna use that money to build some panel. then. I will use that data to get my revenue. Uh, So right after the graduation back in 2015, I started to go out to raise money. I maybe pitched maybe 50 or 60 seed stage investors, angel investors in Boston, right? It was extremely difficult. Basically the feedback was crazy. It's like uh, uh, our company name has TV. So TV is that, I don't want to invest. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was like maybe 30% of the people. Second, like your first-time entrepreneur, your team is very weak. I don't want to invest. Uh, The bunch of the reasons. So basically, very straight. No, for 50 times, it's not easy. Very tough, right? Yeah, discouraging. Yeah. Until one day, I was doing this demo day at MIT Media Lab. There was this gentleman called Bob Mason came to our booth. I mean, of course, at that point, I didn't know how important he was. It's like, uh, okay, another guy, whatever. I'll chat with him. He, he gave me his card. Then he says, I have a friend at Disney ABC. And if you're interested, I can introduce him and I can get his uh, uh, feedback about your company. I said, whatever, I have nothing to lose, right? At Disney is so big and there's no way they're gonna buy anything. But anyway, um, he offered the introduction. I bought a bus ticket from Boston. I went to New York. As an ex McKinsey consultant, of course I worked on PowerPoint. That's something I'm very good at. (laughs) Uh, But the issue was I worked so hard, uh, my battery uh, died on my way to New York. (laughs) Then at least I thought I should show the live demo of the device at Disney, which required Wi-Fi access. You know how difficult to get Wi-Fi access at, at this type of big company. So that didn't work out. So I have to basically talk for 30 minutes straight without anything. Oh my. Then he basically cut me off in the middle. It's like, uh, hey, hey, yeah, you got to stop. Uh, I have no time and your presentation is horrible. Like, uh, but your idea is quite interesting. So is there any way we can do a, a proof of concept study? I said, sure, yeah, we can do that. Uh, how much should I pay you? Uh, I said, uh, like, a, uh, to be honest, I, I really don't know. Like, a, I mean, we have never done any study with anybody. <laughs> so this is like a brand new. He says, uh, is 100K good enough? It's like a, Yes, yes, it's it's (laughs) good enough. He basically pointed me to to a lady right next to him, which is still our client. Says, okay, so she will take care of the paperwork and let's set up a meeting in three months. I'm looking forward to see uh, what's the outcome of this POC study. Then I got so excited, right? It's like, wow, I got 100K, this is amazing. It's Disney ABC, the best entertainment company. Amazing, amazing. (laughs) It's <laughs> so like Bob, right? Bob, amazing. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for the introduction. This is amazing. Like, uh, sounds like I'm gonna close my first deal. Then Bob says, "Wow, I introduced so many people to this guy called Adam at Disney. You're the first guy ever close a deal. Where are oh, you? I okay. need to meet. We need to meet now. Then we schedule a meeting right after the Disney meeting. Then we got a term sheet from Bob, right? And this then is Project that, 11. Project 11. Yeah. Yep. Project 11, uh, uh, Reed, uh, Katie, and Bob Mason. And Bob's still extremely supportive, uh, even today. Um, he he made so much introduction. And uh, it, basically, after we got time sheet from Bob, then everybody else wants to invest, and we did enjoy this campaign and all the stuff. And uh, uh, that's how we got initial money. Then, use that money, we built initial 300 homes in Boston to really prove our case, right? We can do this. Because early on there are a lot of doubts about technology, about product, whether we can build the panel, right? What's the appetite from the clients? Just are so much unknown. So, mm-hmm. so why not just build a panel, collect some data to prove actually this data is valuable, we can produce the data, and the cost is actually manageable. So, so that was extremely valuable uh, for us.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's fascinating because, um, you know, I have two teenage daughters and you see how they watch TV and they're not watching TV. They're watching their phone while the TV's on in the background. So, you know, how are you, how are you able to build a technology that kind of sees if they're paying attention to the TV for however long it is?
1: So one thing I do want to emphasize here is about 93% of the video spent time in the United States happens on the big screen, not small screen. Okay. A lot of people assume that people watch tons of the YouTube and the smartphone, which is true, but that's only 7% of the market, right? 93% happens on the big screen, uh, which is very important, which is something we focus on. However, the big change here is people do watch more streaming. About 20% out of that 93% is already streaming, which is Netflix, Hulu, Roku, even for those OTT platforms, 85 percent plus of the traffic actually happens on the big screen. However, it's different. It's not cable. Um, so the, there's one big issue is how to track all of that, uh, which we can get into later, but, but that's really how industry is shifting. Right. And regarding our technology, we developed a deep learning-based computer vision technology to really able to understand what's going on in the living room at second by second, person by person basis, without any active involvement of the audience, which is fully passive. We think that's the best way to collect most authentic data uh, in the living room. Because no matter you force people to answer a phone call or click a button or answer a survey, it creates bias, right? Nobody likes those type of survey. So we come up with this much better method, which is pretty passive, cannot be better than this, to really collect the authentic data at much more granular level, at second by second, person by person level, which is also impossible to do if you ask people to push a button. Nobody will push the button every second, right? So that's the technology, the core technology, core IP we have.
0: So then you went out and you delivered this proof of concept to ABC Disney. So so how did that go and then how did, the business start to really you know, snowball after that?
1: So uh, ABC Disney was a huge success because after we had this uh, ABC deal, we basically went after other TV networks. Our pitches basically, you may not have never heard of us, but we do have a deal with ABC Disney. So uh, then it's like, oh, if ABC is doing something with you guys, most likely mm-hmm. I want to do something with you. So we quickly got a lot of TV networks because of that. Early on, our focus was really uh, TV networks. Uh, That's the moment we decided to move to New York to to, to set up an office because all the TV networks, as you may know, they're all based in New York. Uh, That really helped us a lot. Then after that, we we started to use that traction to basically raise our series A uh, back in 2016 to help us to continue to expand our panel. Our business is basically this cycle of raise money, expand our panel so we have more data, then we're gonna get more clients, then we use that client traction to raise more money, then then we build bigger panel. Uh, We basically ran through this this cycle. And finally, we got to 5,000 homes at this point, which we think is enough for our business today. So the good news is we don't need to expand uh, our panel anymore. So hopefully we don't need to raise a huge round again, so the focus today is really around sales and marketing. How can we sell this data to more clients, especially brand advertisers?
0: I was going to ask, so is it the brand side that's kind of the key right now to sell to like a Pepsi or any major brand out there?
1: Yeah, because uh, the good news is pretty much we work with all, all major US TV networks plus OTT platforms. That's good news. Now, OT, news- wait,
0: that acronym, so what does that stand for?
1: over the top. Uh, it basically means uh, the video is coming from something other than cable.
0: Like Roku and
1: Apple TV, Apple TV Fire uh, Hulu, yeah, all of these new new, new things, right? And it's, it's growing much faster than live TV, as you can imagine. So the good news is we do have pretty much all the major players at our client. Uh, the bad news is there are not so many, right? There are only five or six big TV network groups, the OTT, Consolidation is actually much faster. So, you only got four or five big guys. So, we have to go to the buy side, basically, brands. And we found that the large advertisers who really uh, believe in the value of the brand equity typically really value our data because more attention people pay. We found that we can improve all these brand metrics, such as brand attractiveness, purchase intention, recall, brand awareness. That's why they really believe in our data and we help them to improve all these brand metrics.
0: And you started using this data for your marketing efforts. Like you were creating these different, you know, Super Bowl ad viewership, like what ads kind of won based on viewership. And then you do like a monthly segment of that as well. So how did using that data to help propel your marketing and sales, like how did that all work out?
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's our unique advantage because we do own all of our data. So, I, so we do have data for all brands, all creatives, all TV shows. So I can share whatever data I want to generate a, a marketing buzz, which has been very successful. So every Super Bowl, every big event, we put out some white paper, put out some uh, interesting facts through our social channel. It's extremely effective if you put the actual brand name. Into the uh, uh, content, right? For example, let's say Amazon hits the highest attention in Super Bowl ads, something like that. Then it can get picked up fairly quickly because if you run Amazon, of course, it, you, you're very proud of you, right? Like uh, uh, you hit the number one uh, attentive ads. And uh, we found that this is a very unique advantage we have. Uh, we also found that it's extremely effective to show some competitive intelligence to our prospects. Because they typically don't know what's going on on the other side. Uh, but we have all the data. We can show what's the difference in terms of the media spend, what's the difference in terms of the performance. And our clients really appreciate those type of insights.
0: Now, how did you figure out, I mean, your, your story was classic at the beginning of the uh, ABC Disney of him saying a price and you being like, yes, sounds good. But how did you figure out the pricing long-term? Like, How are you like, monetizing the data now or how, however your pricing is structured?
1: That's a great question, because early on, I mean, to be very honest, we have no idea. We basically tried to design our product based on their budget, right? But now we have much better understanding, because we have so many clients have been using our data to actually making the media planning, optimization process and able to generate the impact. So the key idea is, uh, what's the additional attention you're able to generate by the same amount of the budget by taking advantage of our data, right? So let's say you're able to generate additional 20% of the attention. Then we translate that into the the media budget in terms of the uh, budget, right? Uh, Let's say like uh, that's worth of $2 million, right? Then the idea here is I help you to save or generate additional $2 million. So I will take, let's say 10% of that as my fee. So that's the general idea, how we design our fee structure. Of course, we are not, uh, our pricing is based on the SaaS contract, so it's annual contracts. So it's not exactly based on the additional attention we create, but that's the basic logic, how we think about our pricing.
0: Because, I mean, you mentioned like the percentage of big screen TV watching is still the lion's share. And like I've talked to people that, you know, you're surprised that, wow, they're still creating these TV ads that are super expensive. It's time, you know, the the expense of buying that slot is super expensive, yet they're still incredibly effective for customer acquisition and getting eyeballs, the viewership is just astronomical compared to other advertising mediums.
1: Yeah, so um, I think it really depends on objectives of the campaign, right? If the objective is simply try to drive some type of the traffic, no matter web traffic or store traffic or any short-term gain, I think it's totally okay for you to run Facebook ads or search ads because people will click and you can drive action. However, for a large brand, I think the two benefits of TV or high premium uh, video campaign, one is it just give you a, a really huge amount of reach. The TV, is still the only medium you can reach to pretty much everybody uh, within a day, right? I mean, that's pretty powerful. The second is, it's difficult to build a brand just with search ads. Search ads is going to drive traffic, but nobody will remember your brands or really understand what is your brand. So you need certain type of the immersive experience to really understand the brand. So that's something 15 seconds ads or 30 seconds ads or some product integration, no matter on OTT or linear TV, really can help brands to really to build up the brand equity, and those brand equity later on can help you to increase the conversion when you run the performance ads, no matter search or social or uh, some type of clicks.
0: Yeah, and I think you know of a, of a local example that you know kind of really uh, dominated advertising on HGTV was Wayfair. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that that was CSN stores, and they had all their microsites, and then they were like we're gonna bet big, we're gonna consolidate everything into one brand, Wayfair. But how do you build a brand? And then I just remember. Whenever that was back with, um, you know, Fixer Upper on HGTV, you would see Wayfair, Wayfair, Wayfair. And it just, you know, it's got into the mindset of the consumer.
1: 100%. I actually listened to their um, co-founder talk a couple of years ago. They did mention, like, they believe one of the key differentiators was TV ads because the furniture, to be honest, it's, it's commodity, right? You can buy the same thing from any shop, but they consolidated everything and they basically run tons of TV ads. Um, to really build a brand, but I think they did in a very sophisticated data-driven way, right? Right. I think that TV ads, yes, it works, but the issue is people just assume, I mean, you just spend some money on TV, it will work, which is not entirely true. You have to be sophisticated about the data-driven marketing. You have to use advanced data set and to really focus on the targeting to optimize the campaign and to make sure to you, you can make your TV dollars work as hard as possible, right? Which I think we did a great job. Uh, that's something we are really advocating is, is it's not like a TV is that TV is still effective. It's just, you also need a better tools to make sure you can let TV dollars work harder for you. So building out
0: t Vision, like what, what have been like the, the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome? I mean, you kind of alluded to some of them in this conversation, but you know, kind of looking back, what have been some of the things that, wow, if we had done that differently, that would have been way smarter.
1: I mean, the everyday is a challenge. It's a startup, it's it's also fun, but but it's it's I think the one biggest challenge is that the challenge is changing. I think that's really a, a challenge itself, right? Because if you look at Our company five years ago is basically me plus my co-founder, that's two people. Um, It Had a lot of challenges, but the challenges are completely different today, right? Now we have the blue chip clients signing multi-year contract with us, I have a reasonably large team. I also have this tech infrastructure, we have the service level agreement with all the clients, server cannot fail. And uh, I cannot push random uh, software to either rest anymore. My CTO is going to kill me. So uh, it's clearly a very different type of a challenge. But but, uh, uh, it's difficult for me to predict how these challenges will evolve. I constantly try to solve all these challenges, but the new challenges are coming up. And most likely the new challenges. And it's difficult to predict. I think that has been, it's not easy, but it's also kind of fun. But I think that's, of course, very difficult. All this uncertainty really make your business much more complex.
0: Well, one of the challenges I hear from entrepreneurs is is hiring. It's just not easy to, to to hire. So, what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs of you know hiring, especially at different stages of your business?
1: That's, of course, that's the biggest challenge for for all of us. And uh, as I said, I think uh, th- uh, the, as the company stages evolve, you need to hire different type of people. However, typically people doesn't grow as quickly as the company. So you have this mismatch every 18 months, which is super painful. Um, but, but if you look at like how we hire people, especially when I was at McKinsey, the hiring process was really based on the IQ, right? How, how smart you are, your skill set. But I think if you're startup, I, I really think that culture, or the character of the person is much, much more important than experience or the skill set mm-hmm. for most of the uh, job category, because skill is something you can teach, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a culture, it's just, it's impossible. It's impossible to change the way a person behaves, but the person you hire will influence your culture into some type of the direction you don't expect. So that's why I think it's extremely important to hire based on the character, based on the culture, not, seen, not just based on the, the, the set. I think we all have the, um, the, the, the sometime you're, you're basically chasing the number, you have a project you need to finish, you have to hire two engineers to finish this. You have the temptation to just hire whatever guy who can code. We got burned so many times. So uh, my advice is really focus on the culture, focus on the character and skill set is something you can teach later.
0: So, so what are you watching these days? What are your watch, oh. watch TV programs these days?
1: Um, I mean, there's so many shows. It's, like, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a
0: golden era of TV. I mean, there's so much great content.
1: I know. And uh, I'm kind of cheating a bit because I do see all the viewership uh, data uh, from all of our panelists, so I basically checking the data. It's like uh, which which data is trending up. You know, I I want to take take a look at that. So this day, I was watching. Uh, there's a Netflix show called uh, Dirty Money. Um, I don't know whether you know uh, or not. It's quite interesting. Um, some topic very relevant for, for uh, today's time and era. I also recently watched Knuckles again because our company is doing uh, internal competition to guess which show has the highest attention for last month or so. Actually, I'm become the winner and it was Knuckles for last month. So uh, I I decided to celebrate and watch this show again. So now it's really the golden age. There's so many new shows. If you compare to 10 years ago, we almost double the number of the TV drama in the United States because of the competition. It's tough for the studio, it's tough for the media companies but uh, it's a golden age for the consumer like us the many contents are very cheap or free and uh, the quality is really great
0: it really is i mean it's i think the challenge for consumers because it's a, it's now across all different quote unquote i would almost consider a network because you got reese witherspoon who anything she does is just amazing but it's on big little lies on hbo the morning shows on apple and um her new one little fires something is on hulu right so it's like there's three different subscriptions you got to subscribe to to get access to that content but um my wife and i started watching ozark uh, mm. as we're in you know quarantine stages here which that talk about a first episode that just draws you in and um you know that's just a you know, great great show so far so
1: yeah, I, I do agree, like uh, I think one of the big opportunity, I mean, we're not in that business, is try to create like a cable box for all these OTT apps, right? Because today you have so many, maybe 150 OTT apps, you're right. I have to switch from Hulu to Netflix and to YouTube and uh, many times, which is not great consumer experience. I think if someone able to consolidate all of this, which I know some company trying to do that, that'll be a huge opportunity Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for the new
0: era of ODD. O- 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 I don't know, like maybe you have insight because this is your industry, but um, so, you know, Tiger King is kind of like, you know, the big thing everyone's talking about on Netflix. Sure. How, what, w- when Netflix releases something like that or Bird Box, like how do they measure the impact on revenue for them? Is it just based on number of subscribers that stay on with them and new subscribers? Like how do they figure yeah. that out? Because they're paying a lot of money for this content
1: for the, sure. you know, like the Adam
0: Sandlers of the world.
1: Sure. So, first of all, this type of like a killer content is extremely important for Netflix. So, uh, for example, the Stranger Things season three, when it got launched, on the first week, about 60% of entire OTT traffic is basically this, this show, right? People started to watch season one, season two as well. So, so it's like a, it's, it's just crazy, right? Like a 60% of all OTT traffic. But my understanding is Netflix really think that user engagement is very important. They don't simply use the impression. So, so uh, internally, they basically really use the, the engagement and they come up with this engagement index using their own data, but essentially how sticky this, this show is and uh, how people really pay attention to the show because they found that that's the early indication Uh, how much uh, binge watch or how much the long-term engagement people will pay to this particular show, which will help. That's the biggest factor contribute to to their churn, right? If you don't have enough engagement, people do churn. When you change the price, when you have new apps, like Peacock, HBO Max, whatever popping up, but people do pay engagement to particular Netflix original shows, they are not going to leave because they love this show so much. They want to wait for the next season. They will stay on on the Netflix platform.
0: Got it. Okay. Outside of, uh, you know, T-Visions, what, what do you like to do outside of work?
1: I run a lot. And actually this might be the one of the most positive effects of the COVID-19 is I have more time to run because I have no need to commute and I stay at home for the entire day. So I do have a good reason to go outside to run by myself. Mm-hmm. So I taste that I run a lot and uh, actually I think my performance is getting better and better because I run a lot. Um, so, so that's something I, I love doing and most likely I'll continue to do. Awesome.
0: Well, Jan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through. I mean, these are some great, great stories of the trials and tribulations of building a startup and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Two Visions is uh, doing some amazing work. So thanks for uh, sharing all the stories.
1: Thank you, Keith. It's uh, it's my pleasure and I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get all future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and don't forget to share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the leading authority for jobs and careers in the tech industry. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.